On the 1st of September 1939, 25-year-old Malvern resident Lorna Lloyd started writing her diary of the war. This is episode 3. It is October 1939. Sunday, October 1st, 1939. It is a day of national prayer, a very fine sermon from the Bishop of Worcester, but the offer of peace is phony, and there is not the slightest likelihood of its being accepted. What of the future? God alone can answer that, and its secret is best left with him. Friday, October 6th, 1939. The much-vaunted peace offer has been made in company with the usual lies and distortions to those unanimous parrots of the Reichstag. This is what we have been waiting for, for this weird mixture of fright and buffoonery, hypocrisy and bluff. He even had the effrontery, after all that has happened, to ask for the return of the German colonies, and he assures the world he has no more territorial claims. Monday, October 9th, 1939. So little is happening that there is nothing to record. We have had the Allegro. This is the Andante, and a very slow one at that. Hitler is waiting for the poison of his peace speech and his propaganda to work. Unfortunately for him, there is not the slightest chance of it doing so. We are faced with one of those immense paradoxes which help cynics to read hypocrisy into the actions of their fellows. As Lord Dunsany said in a little poem on Sunday, the world's only hope is war. We, the most peace-loving, least easily roused of nations, who only wish to be left in peace to develop our resources and better the lot of our people, are faced with the choice of two evils, of which, to press the paradox still further, the lesser is the greater, the lesser evil is war. I almost feel I have been guilty of a volte face in opinion considering what I once thought concerning the specious arguments, the high-sounding phrases and shibboleths that I suspect were brought into play to dress war up into something attractive and tolerable, and yet though I shall always condemn bloodshed, I could not say honestly that I could condemn the cause for which we are fighting, nor could I be satisfied with the peace that did not achieve its aims. Where then does humanity stand? To fight is bestial and degrading, yet it cannot blot out the nobility of dying for a great cause. Dulce et decorum est. Freedom is a noble thing. Nor is there any doubt that Nazism hurts the souls of all with whom it comes into contact. It is something a good deal worse than death. Could it be said that this is simply a notion founded upon prejudice and an inability to see the other man's point of view, one's wits being dulled by home propaganda? Could one for a moment argue that Nazism and democracy were two rival theories of life of equal value? Weighing all the available data without prejudice, one must still decide in favour of a system that allows, first and foremost, liberty of the human spirit, is not based upon narrow and ferocious racialism, does not encourage bullying, chauvinism, bribery and cruelty, that allows to its women a position higher than that of breeder of cubs, and finally, and perhaps above all, pays at least some little service to God. Whatever may be the faults of democracy and democratic nations, and they are many, 
We have progressed, among other things, beyond exulting over a fallen foe, looting a conquered city, and breaking our word even to our enemies. I think perhaps, then, it is the idea that counts, and that extreme and disruptive individualism, at a time like this, can be another name for selfishness. We are faced again with a paradox, and a dangerous one, which might be the cornerstone of fascism, that the individual should be sunk in the hole, except for this conclusion that in our case the individual is sinking his individuality, that ultimately he may preserve it. Whereas in totalitarianism, it is never recovered once surrendered. Mine would be another application of the words, He that loseth his life shall find it. Saturday, October 14th. 1939. Several days of inaction, which has led almost to an impression that there is no war on at all, has been rudely shattered for us by the announcement at 1pm today that HMS Royal Oak has been sunk. We have to content ourselves with the knowledge that three U-boats were dealt with yesterday. Every day, new widows cry, new orphans howl. But the horror of it is that one is rapidly growing used to it. Finland is menaced by Russia, but until some definite statement is issued concerning the negotiations now in progress, it is useless to speculate upon what will transpire there. Six weeks tomorrow. What a lifetime, and what a hell we have lived through since then. Shields Daily News, 14th October 1939. Sunk U-boats were ocean-going. It was learned authoritatively today that two of the U-boats which were sunk yesterday were of the large ocean-going type. The French press gives great prominence to the destruction of three German U-boats yesterday. It is estimated that 17 or 18 U-boats have now been destroyed. Monday, October 16th, 1939 I started work for the WVS on ration cards. Very dull and unheroic in these stirring times, but necessary. Besides, they also serve. The whole of Britain is buzzing this evening like a hive of angry bees. Fritz, being a methodical soul and having nothing else to do on a Monday, carried out a daylight raid on the Firth of Forth and Rosyth. Was very warmly received and lost four planes over the transaction, it is too soon to say whether he hit anything, but no civilians were hurt, or civilian property damaged. No news about the Royal Oak. The Nazi buffoon factory is now claiming to have sunk the Royal Oak and the Repulse. They're too modest. Doubtless we shall learn from them tomorrow that Rosyth and Edinburgh are a heap of smoking ruins, and that the fourth bridge has been totally destroyed. How long it seems since August when we were still at peace. Tuesday, October 17th. 1939. I am still busy on ration cards, and how my hand aches. I can do about one a minute. News came in that HMS Royal Oak was torpedoed inside Scapa Flow by a U-boat. Such a thing would have been thought impossible. It is an amazing feat. We could do with that U-boat commander on our side. It was either an amazing fluke, or seamanship that amounts to genius. 9pm 15th October 1939. Here is a news bulletin. Copyright reserved. Listeners to earlier ones will know by now that it has been an extremely quiet day for news 
and only one or two fresh items have come in since six o'clock. The total number of survivors of HMS Royal Oak, whose names have been published, is 414. The Secretary of the Admiralty regrets to state that the possibility of there being further survivors must now be regarded as remote. Wednesday, October 18th, 1939. Worked all morning. Went to the farm in the afternoon, then to the flicks to see the resurrected version of the Four Feathers. How well I can understand a Harry Feversham, particularly in these times. Fritz made an abortive raid on the Orkneys and lost a plane in the transaction. It comes expensive. Thursday, October 19th, 1939. We, i.e. the Allies, won a spanking diplomatic victory over Germany and Russia in completing, today, a tripartite agreement with Turkey. Nothing has served to seduce the Turks from their promise to Britain and France, a pleasing little commentary upon the ability of European states, so-called civilised, to keep faith. Our own little ration effort came to an end, with the record output of 18,000 books filled in and docketed in less than four days. I think we were all sorry. Something like that helps one to keep one's grip. I believe it is not so much that the war has changed such a great deal in our lives that gives a feeling of instability and unreality, as that it has left so much unchanged. After the first wild, whirling weeks, we have settled down. We go about our ordinary work, we go out to tea, to the pictures, or shopping, and it is easily possible to forget. So vitiating is the continuity. So much does serve as an anodyne. Looking forward at the horrid face of war, a dim, discovered monster looming before us, the sight was unbearable. But perhaps now, that it has thrown its shadow over us, so complete is the darkness that we cannot even see its hideous face. And I think, looking back, we shall imagine that we felt sentiments and emotions that we were really too numbed to feel, because then we shall be sure that if we didn't feel them, we ought to have done. Neque semper acum tendit Apollo. The stringing up, the tension of war doesn't last all the time. Malvern Gazette, 11th November 1939. Malvern receives Russian books. Malvern Food Control Office at the Council House lost no time in dispatching 18,500 Russian books throughout the district. Distribution started on Saturday, and the work was complete by Tuesday morning, with the exception of the registration of establishments. That particular work is now in progress, and hotel and boarding house proprietors and any persons desiring group registration are asked to apply at the Food Control Office. It is pointed out that persons living in registered establishments should not ordinarily deposit individual counterfoils with retailers, for they will be covered by group registration. The ration books, the general, the child's and the travellers, contain full instructions, but attention may be called to a number of special points. All customers must register with retailers for the supply of bacon and ham and butter, which are to be rationed on a date to be announced, and also for sugar, for the purpose of registration and not rationing. The pages of coupons for meat, cooking fats, sugar and those marked spare can be ignored for the present. The counterfoils of those for bacon and ham and butter should be filled up in block capitals. 
consumers may authorize their retailers to detach and retain the whole page of coupons for bacon and ham and butter, but they should not part with any page if they intend to go away for weekends or if they wish to buy bacon or ham for a meal away from home. It is understood that the Ministry of Food is considering an arrangement for Jews and vegetarians who may desire to make an application for extra butter in lieu of bacon. It is expected that an announcement on this subject will be made before the commencement of rationing. The same observations apply to invalids. The position of domestic science centres is also being considered. Friday, October 20th, 1939. Nothing but a sense of well-being over the successful Turco-Allied pact. Saturday, October 21st, Trafalgar Day, 1939. Major event of the day was another invasion which this time got mixed up with a convoy in the North Sea. The result was not at all gratifying for Fritz. He lost four planes and got nothing. Praise be to God. Lord Nelson, they have thought of you and me. Sunday, October 22nd, 1939. The seventh Sunday of the war. Mr Vaughan died suddenly of some sort of seizure. It was a great shock to us as he was here on Thursday last, looking very well and was more than usually lively. Monday, October 23rd, to Thursday, October 26th, 1939. On the whole, it has been a week of inactivity. The USA Senate repealed the Neutrality Act. It still, however, has to pass the House of Representatives. Saturday, October 26th, 1939. I have had the by no means unique experience of being ordered to get out by my amiable father. It has happened now about three or four times, coupled with the assurance that he has not the least interest in me, and accompanied this time with the threat that if I continued to be rude, i.e. to express my ideas freely, a court order could be obtained to eject me. The state of being rude on my part consists of my replying with any degree of indignance or resentment to orders given in a tone which would disgrace a drover shouting at his moke. Since I am dependent for my bread and butter, and never allowed to forget it, I have no right to be spoken to like a human being. Nor, since my behaviour is worthy only to be ignored, have I any right to raise my voice or venture my opinion, even when I happen to be witness of insults and slights heaped upon my beloved mother. That is stating my case very violently, and in the hot blood roused by new cruelties and old bitter prejudices. Now I am going to state my case in stone-cold sobriety. I am a woman of 26 and a Bachelor of Arts. That hard-won title, outside of the house circle, gives me the right to be considered of something a little above the average intelligence. I can deny outright any charges that anyone may care to bring of having caused my parents one moment's anxiety in keeping bad or extravagant company, being disobedient to their wishes, or underhand or untruthful. The only demands I make upon either of my parents are that I shall be accorded a common and loving courtesy, shall be treated in accordance with my age and the standing which I have a right to consider mine, and that I shall be allowed my own opinions which I am now well qualified to form. My darling mother has never for one moment found it necessary to use force upon me, because she has always listened sympathetically to what I have had to say. I imagine she usually finds that my ideas are common sense, and that when they are not, I am open to reason. This is my standing ground. 
Reason and reasonableness are my law, so long as I am expected to acquiesce in anything that I believe to be unjust or wrong without registering a protest, however vain, a course that anyone with any integrity of spirit would revolt from, and so long as I and my sweet mother are addressed like some kind of helot, so long shall I reserve the right to reply as I think fit, whether my conduct is considered insubordinate and infilial or not. But should a new and more loving way be adopted, I should be only too glad and happy to end this hateful state of affairs. When I am treated like a daughter, I shall behave like one. Thursday, November 9th, 1939. There has been nothing to record until today, except that in my private struggle, my amiable parent, following his policy of ignoring me, has not addressed one single word to me since that last entry was made. Nor I to him. Honesty demands that I admit it. In the world of public affairs, which are more important, there has been a lull, which was broken today by the explosion of a bomb at Munich in the beer hall, just fifteen minutes too late to do any good, that is after Hitler and his thugs had left. Eight were killed and sixty-three injured, but one can scarcely doubt that it was not the guilty who suffered, or at least not the guiltiest. Meanwhile, Germany has been massing troops on the frontiers of Holland and Belgium, a move which I predicted two months ago. It was rather obvious. I am afraid there is not much doubt about it now. The only question is when. Garvin thought November 11th. Others say November 15th. The things that are going to happen have already happened. Daily Herald, 9th November 1939. Attempt on Hitler. Explosion wrecks beer cellar after speech. Old guards killed. An attempt to assassinate Hitler was made in Munich last night. A bomb exploded in the famous Burgerbrau beer cellar, where only 27 minutes earlier, the Führer had finished speaking to the Nazi old guard. Several people were killed, says British United Press, but Hitler escaped. It is understood he had left the cellar some time before. No details of the explosion were available in Berlin this morning. The propaganda ministry stated that it hoped to know the complete story soon, but it was admitted that the explosion was caused by an explosive body and not a defective boiler, as had been suggested at first. The authorities added that they were not permitted to divulge the number of casualties. Saturday, November 11th, 1939. Armistice Remembrance Day. Today has been one of poignant memory, but it has also been, I think, a great day, one thing that stands out as symbolic of something that is stirring in the depths of the nation's being. It could never have been a day of mafficking for victory. It might have been one of profound dejection for spiritual defeat. But the public utterances of all leaders of thought seem to have arrived at an unusual unity of atmosphere. No ringing of bells, nor beating of breasts, but solemn rededication to a cause too colossal for one generation, to an end left incomplete together with full and grateful realisation that the millions of dead sacrificed their lives for an ideal too stupendous, too staggeringly new, to be universally accepted at once. Out of these two terrible months, which have seen the temporary extinction of one nation, and menaces to others, one or two vivid pictures emerge, pictures which, trivial though they may be, I shall carry with me in years to come. 
I see a phenomenally fine October and clear bright sunshine on deep russet leaves and the green-brown of the hills. Looking over the country with the trees bowed down with fruit, I knew that, more than all the pomp of clowns and governments, for me stood for England. Something fundamental in me found the thought of those quiet fields and generous trees in the hands of someone else utterly intolerable. The other memories were oral, a Frenchman reading John Barber's Freedom is a Noble Thing, with such perfect understanding and sympathy that seemed to give an added luster to the words. Little Claire, sitting on my knee, saying the 23rd Psalm, in a clear, crisp, childish voice, without a trace of overemphasis or self-consciousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Thou art with me. Monday, November 20th, 1939. The offensive against Holland and Belgium seems to have been indefinitely postponed, but this has been a black weekend for all seafaring folk. Eight ships mined, four of them neutrals including the Dutch liner Simon Bolivar, sunk on Saturday with a loss of 126 lives. Survivors' stories are so unbearable as to be absolutely unreadable. The whole world is outraged by this German atrocity. Oh, God, will they never learn. Birmingham Mail, 20th November 1939. Nazi outrage. Dutch liner sunk by mines. At least a hundred lives lost. Survivors describe pitiful scenes. It is established beyond doubt, according to a British Admiralty statement, that two mines of German origin sank the Dutch liner Simon Bolivar off the east coast of England on Saturday with a loss of at least a hundred lives. A score of these are British. The Simon Bolivar, 7,960 tons, was on her way to the West Indies. She was using a channel British and neutral ships travel off the English coast. The first explosion amidships wrecked the bridge and killed the liner's captain. The second occurred twenty minutes later, while the survivors were getting away in the boats. The liner plunged to the bottom within a few minutes, but so shallow is the water where she sank that the tops of her masts and funnels remain above water. A provisional list of survivors issued by the owner's London agents late last night gives 262 names, of whom 182 are in London. The liner was believed to be carrying nearly 400 passengers and crew. There are many women and children among those missing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lorna Lloyd's Diary of the War. Lorna Lloyd is played by Bethany Ray and the newsreader by Richard Godden. Catherine Stephen is the announcer. The War Diary was written by Lorna Lloyd. Additional radio news broadcast material was supplied by the BBC Archive, copyright BBC. Print news was sourced from the British Newspaper Archive, with thanks to the British Library and Find My Past, and from back issues of the Malvern Gazette, held at Malvern Library. The theme tune is an extract from César Franck's Symphony in D minor, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Richard Hickox on the 5th of September 2003, and also kindly made available by the BBC Archive. This podcast episode was brought to you by staff and students of the School of Computing at Edinburgh Napier University. It was produced by third-year students Alex Genks, David Graham, James McLaughlin, Andrash Peter and Michael Sutty under the supervision of Ian McGregor. The podcast was directed by Bruce Ryan. 
with the assistance of Hazel Hall. The UK Arts and Humanities Research Council funded this work through the Creative Informatics Programme. Find out more about Lorna Lloyd and Wartime in Malvern at www.malvernmuseum.co.uk and in the next episode of The Diary of the War.